Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant over there, and uh, it's just us today, and that's fine because it's a Thursday. We get a little crazy on Thursdays. We have a potluck. Yeah. Um, today, I brought gavelta fish, and Chuck doesn't like it, but we're just moving forward, and this is stuff you should know. I think it's good. I brought my uh, my deviled eggs. Yeah. They're good. Thank you. <laughs> You took my advice and used the secret ingredient, Coleman's mustard. Oh, ooh. I have a but couple of, course, of other uh, friends who are way into Coleman's, by the way. It's really great in deviled eggs. I'm not kidding. I Chuck. believe it. I'm sure if you're a mustard fan, it's the one to go to. Oh, yeah. You hate mustard, <laughs> don't you? I forgot. That's right. Remember the narrative, I hate mustard, <laughs> and you refuse to accept that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just so bonkers that I can't wrap my head around it, I guess, is the problem. Uh, speaking of narrative... This this story today is a bit of a cautionary tale on narratives, I think. Oh, well, well put. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, and, you know, we'll get into it here in a second, but it's the story of a, of a young genius prodigy. And in researching this, there are, you know, a lot of conflicting accounts about how his home life was and how his parents treated him and... Uh, it's a story of media sensationalism, and it's a story of parents who were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways for the time, but also, I don't know about victims, but also just sort of fell into the usual state of parenthood at the time, which is end of the, or sort of beginning of the 20th century. So it's not like parenting then was at its at its peak, you know? Yeah, no, and you can also say that his parents conceivably, and him, went against the grain of normalcy and sure. the status quo, and that, um, you know, the American public and media kind of bristled at that, and that they were treated poorly for that, and so, you know, do we? how much do we need to question of what, what is said about them from, you know, journalism at the time? And it's a, it's a big morass, basically. I think, to paraphrase what you're saying, it's a cautionary tale about making cautionary tales out of anything right yeah although i do think this is a cautionary tale but okay so <laughs> we'll 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 get to the end well in the end we'll reveal what you think it's a cautionary tale about yeah and you know well, let's just get into it let's let's talk about william james is it Sidus or Sidus? Sidus. Sidus. is it side ice i don't think so <laughs> That's what you keep in your pocket for when you've got some lukewarm <laughs> soda. Well, just like everything else with this guy, I heard a couple of different pronunciations on YouTube. So so I saw it spelled out a couple of different places that seemed to know what they were talking about. Sidus. Sidus. Yeah, so with the emphasis on the side. But I had not heard of him before, had you? Yeah, I mean, we did a, a chapter in our book on prodigies, and um, I he wasn't in the book, but I— right remember reading a little bit about him at the time. And I, I think just the whole idea of child prodigies really um, is super fascinating to me. So I would like to do one on prodigies, maybe tackle. Yeah. That'd be maybe one of the first book chapters we retrofit as a podcast. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, they just have always fascinated me. And Billy was interesting in that a lot of times prodigies are 
prodigies in like a single discipline. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily saying they're big dum dums everywhere else, but there's like one major focus. But young Billy was a, a language prodigy, a math and science prodigy. Mm-hmm. He was just History, a, a well-rounded, literature. kind of know-a-lot kid. Yeah, he really was. Uh, and he was, he's very frequently lifted up as the prodigy, perhaps the most gifted child that has ever lived, uh, certainly at least in the recorded history in the West. And maybe the um, smartest human. Uh, yeah, it's entirely possible. It's hard to quantify. Yeah, it it is, which I think is another thing that will really come up in that prodigies episode is, you know, exactly how do you how do you say who's the smartest and who's not? Is it, you know, or IQ test reliable, which I think in addition to prodigies we need to do one just on IQ tests too, okay? Yeah, and I also want to go ahead and correct myself when I said he was well-rounded, he was academically well-rounded because as we will yeah, see, he was not very well-rounded as a young child. Uh, and that was one of the major mistakes that his parents made. Yeah, for sure. Um, and one of the other things that he's also often kind of um, held out as an example of is this this burning question that we still have today is, um, are gifted children the products of their environment? Mm-hmm. Like, can you just take basically any child and make them a, a gifted prodigy? Um, or is it, you know, genetics? Is it really just, you know, is that we're gifted, apt, apt, you know, where, like, you're, you're kind of born with this. You didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You just, it's just who you are. You're a gifted, intelligent person from a very early age. And we still haven't gotten to the bottom of that. But, um, and he actually, he, he kind of muddies that, the answer to that question more than answers it at all, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, I definitely believe that you are born gifted, but then from the moment you're born on, everything else plays in. So he comes, one of the, the reason I think he, he muddies the, I, the answer to that question is he comes from very intelligent stock. Both his mother and his father were extremely intelligent people, um, but they also were the kind of people who tried to educate him starting around age two, maybe even a little earlier. So he's an amalgamation of those two things. Parents who were incredibly intelligent, who would have ostensibly passed along some pretty smart genes, um, and parents who, you know, made him, produced an environment for him that made him into, you know, a prodigious learner. Yeah, so let's let's start with this, folks. His dad, Boris, they were both Russian immigrants, and his dad was put in jail in Russia before he managed to get out of there uh, for uh, apparently in a prison that was so small, he couldn't even like recline himself mm-hmm. fully and sleep yeah. and sleep in a little like fetal position, I think. And he was, uh, he was jailed for, for teaching and he, he was teaching peasants. He didn't have permission. They didn't like that in Russia. Uh, he mm-hmm. was let out after a couple of years on the condition that he didn't teach other people how to read anymore and supposedly didn't read himself was under surveillance but then got the heck out of there. Yeah, he, he was like, I see the writing on the wall. It's time for me to get out of here. I'm going to go to America because at the time, America was this shining beacon for immigrants saying, come, we're a land of opportunity. We turn the lights on uh, in the Statue of Liberty. Tom Brokaw did it himself, and <laughs> just like a Motel 6. And... Um, it's uh, it's it's the doors are open basically. So he and Sarah, um, Billy's mom, 
both took America up on that, although separately. They actually met in America, although they were both from the Ukraine, I believe. Yeah, and Boris, uh, he he sort of bucked a lot of trends back then, and this was in the late 1800s. He was an atheist, um, which was, you know, not in fashion at the time. Mm-hmm. He later uh, got into, like, he made a big name for himself in the early days of psychology and psychoanalysis. Right. And he was an opponent of Freud, which was uh, certainly rocked the boat at the time. Mm-hmm. And then he really despised traditional education in kind of all its forms and the way yeah. it was back then. Particularly rote memorization. It was, he just hated it so much. He saw zero value in it whatsoever. And so, like, that's kind of the basis of his concept of educating not just children, but anybody. It's figure out what the basics are, learn the basics, the fundamentals, and then use those to reason your way to answer basically any question that you possibly could have. And that that idea applies to everything from philosophy to math to literature to history to to language, that you can figure anything out if you understand just a few fundamentals of it. And so that's what his big focus was on that. Yeah, Sarah, his mother, um, she worked her way through college, paid for it herself. She worked as a nurse at night, went to medical school during the day, I believe was the first uh, woman admitted to Boston Medical School Hmm. uh, or Medical College. And uh, she never became a doctor, though. She instead chose to parent. And um, they both worked their way to the, I mean, by the time they came to the East Coast in the 1880s, they both worked their way to the top of as high as you could get in academic achievement in the United States. I think Boris had his bachelor's and master's from Harvard in three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Sarah went to Boston U and they, they were both overachievers and obviously had uh, a kid. I never really, they had a daughter named Helena, but I didn't see how much she achieved. I don't know either, although I saw that she and her brother shared a lot of similar interests, so they were close throughout his whole life. I'm sure she was pretty smart, too. Yeah, I would guess so, too. Something um, tells if, me she was no dum-dum. No, for, certainly not. Um, but but the, the th- one of the things about Boris and Sarah is both of them, everything you just described that they achieved in America, they did within 10 years of arriving. And when they both arrived, neither one of them spoke a word of English. It's amazing. So they went from speaking no English to things like MDs and, and PhDs within 10 years. So they made quite a, a splash. Um, and Boris himself enjoys kind of a separate fame from his son as well. He was a really well um, respected uh, uh, pioneer in psychology, yeah. I believe. He was um, instructed under William James, who was considered one of the two founders of psychology, who basically believed that behavior, human behavior, um, was a, a way that humans adapt to our environment. And so if you could just kind of study the environment, study behavior, you could just kind of understand the world that much better. And that was his kind of foundation for psychology. And um, Boris Sidus was, you know, one of his protégés. Um, and it sounds in like fact, a disease. He, he, uh, <laughs> Boris what, Sidus. What? Boris <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, but the, uh, man, you really threw me off with Boris-itis, because now I can't stop thinking about <laughs> what Boris-itis is. Uh, it, enlarged foot? Sure. There you go. All right. Boris-itis. Like a big cartoony, like, keep on trucking guy foot. Yeah, yeah. But just one of them. See, and then now we can put it to bed. Thank you. Because <laughs> I, I think <laughs> it would have thrown off the whole rest of the episode if we hadn't just addressed it on right. his face, you know? Uh-huh. 
So um, he, so Boris um, looked up to William James so much he named his son after him. It's William James Sidus. Um, but he, so he was respected in his in his own right as well. But it was it was Billy um, who became like far and away the most famous Sidus, and it was largely because his parents really welcomed the spotlight and then realized far too late in Billy's life that that was not a good thing for a kid. Yeah, should we go over the, uh, you took up these from Sarah Sidus's another condition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you put Sidus on anything. Yeah. I guess you have to it's have like, two syllables, like Josh Sidus doesn't sound like it. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. You got to have or two Chuck, syllables. In Chuck Sidus? Chuck Sidus, no. Chuck Sidus, I guess. It's like a, a, it's something that ground beef can come down with. <laughs> or Jerry Sidus. Yeah, sure. That has something to do with miso. It does. It's miso overload. Like the <laughs> the blue man who took too much copper. Right. This is, um, you just turn, you just start smelling like miso. It comes out of your ears. Uh, so should we, I think before our break, maybe let's run over um, what you dug up from Sarah Sidus's, I don't know if this is from her book that she wrote later, but she kind of outlined her and their parenting sort mm-hmm. of checklist, which when you read it, it does not seem like a parenting checklist from the early 1900s. No, it's super progressive, isn't it? It is in a lot of ways. Uh, then I'll get to the part that they kind of really forget at the end. But um, <laughs> avoid punishment in all ways possible. Not bad. Why? Because it's the first cause of fear. Pretty sensible. Sensible. Uh, try not to say don't to your children. Uh, instead, explain why what you say is so. That's awesome. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. A lot of these are still very valid. Um, awaken curiosity, for sure. Yeah. Uh, never fail to answer and never put off your child's questions. Probably the hardest thing to do as a parent, but valid. Right. Because they come hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, never force your child to learn nor judge their ability to learn by adult standards. Now, that's a that's big a, one for them that I wonder if is. they really abided by. Either that or they did abide by it and it, they, were, they were misinterpreted and mislabeled yeah, um, labeled later on, you know? Um, there's a few more here. Implant ideas at bedtime just before sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about the science behind that, but it sounds reasonable. Sure. Like when your child is, is going off to slumberland, you can introduce them to the concept that they'll die eventually right. one day. <laughs> and the right Before Duke. they go to sleep. It really <laughs> sticks in their head. Uh, never lie to your child or use evasions. That's impossible, but sure. <laughs> okay. uh, refrain from showing him off. I think that's where they really drop the ball. Yeah, that's almost revisionist to add that because I, there's just no way that they knew that f- yeah. from the get-go. They just didn't follow it. They didn't even seem to consider following it. And I think they really grossly overestimated the warmth of the response the public would, would greet young William with. Yeah, and then the big one that I think, it just wasn't a thing back then, so I'm going to give them a pass. But okay. uh, we now know so much about social what they call social-emotional development mm-hmm. and teaching and parenting and it just didn't really exist back then and and young billy certainly didn't get any of that so he right he, he suffered for that reason so they released this and american parents responded by saying we're tired just reading this list right <laughs> <laughs> you know uh so should we take that break yeah so, so we can get some rest sure 
All right, I got to go put up this big foot. Let it relax for a little bit. We'll be right you back. You have boracitis. So, Chuck, we kind of went over um, Boris and Sarah's uh, list on, you know, how to raise a child. And it kind of underscores this premise that was basically the the entire premise of Boris's approach to childhood education was that if you— um, if you do this with a kid, if you if you say, okay, you know, the, um, if you create curiosity and interest in a child and then nurture it with lots of books and, like, you know, uh, lectures and whatever you can find to keep the kid's curiosity going and just feed it 24-7. If they have a question or something like that, you just sit down with them and you talk it out. That if you do this and you start at a young enough age, you know, by the time your kid is, you know, Eight, nine, ten. Yeah, they should be at least as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than an average adult. And his premise was that you could do this with any kid, and that you kind of should do this with any kid. And their proof of concept was their son Billy, who had a, a really impressive list of accomplishments to his credit by the time he was like eight, nine, or ten. Right? Yeah. I mean, we'll go through some of these. I think some of these maybe take with a grain of salt because. Records from the early 1900s are what they are, and his story has been sort of, um, I don't know the best word to use. Convoluted, exaggerated in places? Maybe exaggerated in places, but I don't want to take anything away from him because a lot of it checks out too, but let's just go go through them. Um, Supposedly at 18 months was reading the New York Times uh, by three, knew Latin by six, uh, knew Russian, French, German, Hebrew, Armenian, and Turkish. Okay. Uh, was typing letters at three to Macy's about Christmas toys. Very cute. <laughs> right. Uh, I also saw that he taught himself to eat with a spoon by eight months old through trial and error. All right. That's, I've seen babies do that. An eight-month-old baby? Yeah, it's hard to remember. Huh, okay. All right. What else? Maybe not. I don't know. It just seems like something that baby would be like, I, I don't know what this, it would be more likely to go in their eye or their ear than in their <laughs> mouth, you know? I'm trying to remember. It's all a blur. Uh, let me bad. see. He apparently uh, graduated. I mean, he went through grade school in like no time. He entered the first grade and graduated and through primary school entirely in seven months. It was basically like Billy Madison. Yeah, which I've never seen, but I know the story. Okay. Uh, between six and eight, he wrote at least four books. Uh, and at eight, he passed the Harvard Medical School anatomy exam and then the entrance exam to MIT. And also at eight, invented his own language called in a book uh, called – the book was called Book of Vendergood and the language was Vendergood. Yeah, not like, you know, just some gibberish or whatever. He took from like Latin and Greek and some of the Romance languages and figured out different ways to conjugate um, words based on these this language. And like he created his own language. It wasn't just some lame thing where words were replaced with words. Yeah, like, I think there were like eight cases to learn it. or something, yeah. grammatical cases. Yeah, it was really impressive stuff. Yeah. Um, and it was the kind of thing I saw somebody put it like a, a linguistics professor would have been – you know, well-received for having written a book where they debuted their own language. And this kid was doing it in, you know, before he was 10. 
Yeah, so he's he's flying through school. Um, this is all going great as far as the plan uh, that his parents had to raise mm-hmm. a really, really smart kid. But mm-hmm. a very bad thing happened as he was doing this, and the press noticed. Um, when you get into Harvard at nine years old, um, mm-hmm. they didn't let him in until he was 11. But when, you know, that's going to be a news story. And by 1909, when he when he entered Harvard as an 11-year-old, it was it was the full court press from the media. Uh, apparently, he would, and this is before he went to Harvard. He would come home from elementary and high school, and there would be like two photographers waiting outside his place, and one of them would hold him, while the other one would take his picture, like physically hold him. Yeah, like he had no say in this whatsoever. He'd be accosted. Yeah. So I hear this, and I think that's awful. The media is terrible. But I also think like where were where was his mom? Where was his dad? Yeah. While these photographers are holding him out in the street. Well, you know, he's a free range kid, I guess, in that respect. <laughs> I guess so. And that's pretty bad. That's definitely a, a very unpleasant thing from childhood. And even worse, that would basically lay the groundwork for his relationship with the media from yeah, that point on. For sure. And they would just keep going after him. Even after he'd been out of the limelight for decades, they would still, they'd be like, whatever happened to that weirdo Billy Sidus? Right. And um, they'd look him up and write an article on him. And it would, he, he was just, he, as we'll see, he became a very private person. It was a huge invasion of his privacy. But that's where the whole thing started. But one of the other reasons, I think, also that he was such a private person and that the media media spotlight was even worse to mm-hmm. him than it would have been for uh, any other child his age. Of course. Is that you, you touched on it, I think, earlier, that his father eschewed play. Yeah. Like, there was no play involved. There was no socialization with his peers. There was no encouragement whatsoever for him to make friends. And I get the impression there was actually a bit of a prohibition on him going out and making friends because his yeah. friends couldn't have possibly kept up with him. So how could he possibly be enriched by hanging out with other eight-year-olds? And I think his family kind of acknowledged that later on, that that was a huge misstep. And if they didn't, the rest of the world has has admitted it for them. And they they've been vilified in a lot of ways for doing that. And I think rightfully so. Like, if they've if they've been vilified, not all of it can be justified. But there's a couple of things that you can be like, yes, that was a really bad thing to do with Billy, mm-hmm. and it messed him up, and that was a big one of them. For sure. Yeah. Uh, he When he got to Harvard, he started showing his um, massive capacity for math and mathematical courses. Uh, he was designing his own logarithmic tables, he gave his first lecture, uh, including to faculty, uh, when he was 11 years old, uh, to the Harvard Mathematical Club about four-dimensional bodies. And then, you know, he sort of had, apparently, he had his little act down um, with the press. He would introduce himself, and he would he would try and, you know, I, I think he was described as precocious a lot, but it came across, I mean, precocious is sort of a nice way of saying that he was rude to a lot of adults who he thought he was smarter than. Um, yes. And I don't okay. think he was ever really taught any different uh, by his mm-hmm. parents. The thing is, though, is like that's a really good anecdote, and it does illustrate like what he was like at age 11, g- granted. But the problem is that it's because you have so many, so few anecdotes about him that it gives you the impression that he was a, a jerk. 
And I saw after he died, a friend of his wrote into a, a newspaper or a magazine and said, you know, a lot of these editorials about uh, William Sidus are really misguided. And one of the things that you should know about him is he looked down on no one. He was a kind, gentle person who looked down on no one else. And um, I really think that you got to take that along with that anecdote about him, like, you know, kind of talking down to some of the professors at Harvard during that lecture. Well, he was 11. <laughs> okay. That is a much more succinct way of putting what I was <laughs> what I was trying to get at, I guess. There's a lot of 11-year-old jerks. Uh, but and that, you, you age out of it, hopefully. Sure. But that lecture, Chuck, is it's a really pivotal moment in his life. For one, it basically said, hey, world, I am maybe the smartest person on the planet or whoever lived. Mm-hmm. Check it out. And then that brought all that media attention. But it also showed, like, to the people who were paying attention and who knew what he was talking about, um, that, that like, this was a legit dude. This guy was going to contribute to who knows how many different fields in his lifetime. And, in fact, Norbert Wiener, who became the father of cybernetics, who was Uh a child prodigy himself. He was, like, 14, I think, at the time. Mm -hmm. He went to Harvard starting the same year as William Sidus did. He was at that lecture. Yeah, there were some interesting stories about those two being there at the same yeah. time. Yeah, because they were definitely not the same person, no, even no, though everybody lumped them together, you know, um, both being at Harvard in, in, as like an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old. But um, Norbert Wiener was at that lecture, and he, he noted that, like, this lecture is based on this guy's original thinking. This is not just a summation of a bunch of different work, other people's work, on bodies in the fourth dimension. Like, this is what this guy came up with about the fourth dimension, and it all checks out. Like, that's impressive stuff. Yeah, there was an MIT physics professor named Daniel Comstock who said that, you know, he has a real intellect. He said it is not automatic. He does not cram his head with facts. He reasons. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a difference. That's a different kind of intelligence than just, you know, memorizing a lot of stuff so you can be on Jeopardy, um, which is, you know, another kind no of shade intelligence. To that. No shade. Sure. I mean, I would love to go on Jeopardy and perform well. Um, hint, hint. But Comstock, oh, I would not do well, so I don't want to go. But uh, Comst- I, I think I would freeze. Do you think you'd freeze? <laughs> I just, I, I, I'm not Jeopardy material. Okay. I'm go. Jeopardy from the couch material. Yeah, yeah. You could shout it out occasionally, only when you're 100% certain you're right. Yeah, but I'm not good enough to be on that show. I know. Uh, Comstock went on to say, I believe he'll be a great mathematician, the leader in science in the future, uh, the leader in that science in the future. And a lot of hay has been made about IQ, uh, not just for him, but certainly for him, but just period. I mean, like you said, we should totally do one on IQ tests and whether it's even valid or not. But mm-hmm. he uh, retroactively, they have um, basically said that they think he had an IQ of about 250 to 300. Mm-hmm. Um, above 130 is considered very advanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have retroactively... Um, said that Einstein had about a 160, Da Vinci had about a 180, Newton may have been about a 190. So take it for what it's worth. Uh, all this is just to say that Billy Sidus was, you know, super, super smart by kind of any measure. And so so that Harvard lecture definitely brought the spotlight on him, not necessarily to um, like a, a, an adoring spotlight, and then also at the same time, um, his father delivered a lecture that became a, a book, really kind of 45-page essay called Philistine and Genius. 
And it was basically where he lays out this idea that any kid can be a prodigy. Yeah. And and that ultimately we're doing our children a disservice by being lazy and, you know, just living with the status quo and not producing geniuses because we're just we're just not up to the task. And that was not very well received either. So everybody started to hate Boris because he was an outsider. He's a recent immigrant from Russia. And he was Jewish. And he was basically telling America that its parenting skills sucked. Um, and then at the same time, his son steps out or steps into the spotlight as like the super brainiac who's a proof of concept of all of this. And so the the attention that was lavished on both of them and on William for the rest of his life was, you're a weirdo. We need to tear you down because if you, if your father's correct, then we're all doing our kids a disservice. So there has to be something wrong with you or else we're the ones who are wrong. And so the media and the American public basically started to delight in tearing William down every chance they got. And he really just tried to run from the spotlight as best he could. All right, so let's take a break and we'll come back and kind of pick up at Harvard where this 11-year-old was still studying right after this. All right, so little Billy's at Harvard. Uh, his he was commuting, you know, with his parents, and then they decided uh, that they were going to leave and go to New Hampshire and go into business, um, the the mental health business, basically. Boris opened mm-hmm. a sanatorium uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they said, basically, you know, try out the dorm. Let's see how it works. He moved into the dorm. It did not go well at all. Uh, He was bullied. He was the butt of jokes and pranks. Uh, He did not have interest in girls. They teased him a lot about that. Uh, He eventually moved into a rooming house uh, instead of the dorm. And uh, even still, he graduated uh, magna cum laude at 16 years old. In 1914, and told reporters after he graduated, uh, I want to live the perfect life. The only way to live the perfect life is to live it in seclusion. Uh, I have always hated crowds. Uh, he vowed to remain celibate. And, you know, that's was kind of his life. He, he, I don't think he necessarily was that way by nature or, uh, yeah, by nature. I think he was sort of forced into retreatment because of what happened to him with the press and having no social skills because he was not socialized because of his parents. A lot of factors going into it. For sure. And on that celibate thing, like a lot of people made a lot of hay about that at the time because he, you know, revealed it publicly somehow. Um, He had taken a vow underneath a tree that he would remain celibate throughout his lifetime, which a lot of great thinkers have. I think Da Vinci did and uh, Newton did Mm -hmm. and a bunch of others. Um, And he followed in their footsteps but he kept a picture of the tree that he kept – he'd carry around with him to remind him, like, oh, yeah, I'm celibate. Um, but the <laughs> the media, again, they're like, oh, this is a great opportunity to tear this guy down. He's a total weirdo. He's not interested in girls. He's not even interested in guys. He's inter- interested in nobody. Let's let's make – let's use that as evidence that this guy is out of his mind. And yeah. did. Very, you very know? sad. Yeah. Uh, so he leaves Harvard and with that degree – And for a little while, he teaches math at William Marsh Rice Institute for Advancement of Letters, Science, and Art. Uh, Eventually, they just said, can we just call it Rice University? (laughs) Uh, 
<laughs> be much easier. Uh, he arrived in December 1915. He was 17 years old, um, taught Euclidean geometry, non-Euclidean uh, geometry, and freshman math, and didn't last long there either <laughs> because he was younger than the people he was teaching, and it was just really, really tough. Um, mm-hmm. Eventually went back to Harvard Law and left after three years without a degree, but uh, with good standing, apparently. Yeah. Um, like like he didn't flunk that, out. So he got back, I guess, when he was at Harvard Law, it must have been, um, that he uh, be- he became interested in socialism. Yeah. Like, fervently interested. He was uh, described, I think, Chuck, as a, uh, a libertarian pacifist yeah, by a friend that. after he died. And that his whole thing, like, like he was really passionate about trolley car transfers, mm-hmm. about— Northeastern Native American history, about a lot of varied stuff. But his great passion was the idea that every single person should be free to live their life as they see fit, and that the role of government, and you needed a strong government, was to protect those individuals' rights from encroachment in that sense, that that is what he cared about. And for a little while, it was directed towards socialism and communism, and he was actually arrested uh, and considered, you know, unpatriotic and un-American at this one May Day rally um, and almost went to jail, supposedly for assaulting an officer, although everybody says that didn't actually happen. Yeah, it was uh, for rioting, uh, two charges, rioting and assaulting a cop, Mm-hmm. And it was all over the newspapers because of who he is. I think 114 people were arrested, including a young lady named Martha Foley, who he actually fell in love with. Mm-hmm. So he he tested his celibacy uh, with Martha, even though uh, I think there I think it never grew beyond a close friendship. Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And I I don't really understand what her her feelings were about if she was just like, we're just friends. He was always in the friend zone with her or she was like, (laughs) you know, you're actually not interested in me. We'll be friends. Who knows? But she went on to marry uh, another man. um, And uh, I get the impression that Bill was left to kind of um, just pine for her (laughs) while looking at the picture of the tree that he took the vow under. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So back to the arrest, he was released on $500 bail um, under the condition that he be released under his father's care, um, or both of his parents, I guess, at the sanitarium. So he gets shipped off to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, he said in his own words, uh, he was kidnapped by his parents by arrangement with the DA and was taken to the sanitarium operated by them and kept there a full year under various kinds of mental torture, uh, consisting of being scolded and nagged at for an average of six to eight hours a day. Um, they said they pumped him full of sleeping medicine, threatened to send him to uh, just sort of a standard insane asylum is what they called him at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just sounds like it sounds like things went really, really bad between he and his parents at that point. Yeah, I think um, I don't really know what the r- relationship was like, but it seems to have finally fully deteriorated during that year. I don't think sure. they ever spoke after that. Well, the, his parents wanted to. They used to, like, um, try to track him down, and they would find his, whoever his friends were and, you know, try to get them to turn him over to them because, you know, they were like, it's for his own good. He doesn't—he's yeah. he's crazy or whatever. He—that um, just, you know, estranged him even further from them. But if it, if it wasn't deteriorating before, it was after that, that year at the family sanitarium that—or sanatorium that he had to spend. 
Yeah, so he um, eventually is released after that year. I think he goes to California for about a year, then makes his way back east. And basically, from this point forward, he did, I mean, they called them uninspired jobs, kind of mostly where I saw. I don't think he was doing the goodwill hunting thing um, and doing, like, custodial work. Mostly what I found is that he was doing um, work, I mean, they called them adding machines, like mm-hmm. accounting work. What they really were were sort of the first calculators, the uh, comptometers. Mm-hmm. And um, even then, apparently, he would do work on two of them at once, one with his <laughs> left hand, one with his right hand, yeah. and would do his eight-hour workday in about an hour, um, but would sort of move from job to job whenever, you know, it says here whenever people would recognize who he was. I think it was probably a little more nuanced than that. I yeah. would guess, like, when the press got a hold of it. Right. Um, I don't think it's like if someone in his office realized who he was, he was like, I'm out of here. Uh, but he would kind of go from job to job. He said that the very sight of a mathematical formula make, makes me physically ill. Hmm. Uh, but here's the thing. he I think a lot of publications make it seem like he was shunning smarts and doing anything worthwhile. But the entire time, he was just pumping out books. Uh, a lot of most of them not published, many of them under pseudonyms, yeah. but just writing about all kinds of stuff. He wrote that book on uh, – Transfer tickets. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> Streetcar like transfer 300, tickets. 300 pages on collecting transfer tickets. Uh, but he wrote a lot. Eventually, he did write one book that became fairly well-known called uh, The Animate and the Inanimate in 1925. Yeah, which is a super daring um, premise in that it, it talks about the origin of the universe. Uh, it describes things like uh, dark matter um, it, it predicts, um, black holes, which a lot of people are like, this is years before black holes were discovered. Well, I think Einstein had predicted black holes in his theory of relativity, like a full 10 years before, five mm-hmm. years before he was writing this, but it's still super impressive. But the reason it's daring is because he is one of the few people to suggest and, you know, back up mathematically, um, or attempt to, that the second law of thermodynamics, that matter in the universe tends toward chaos and disorder, and there mm-hmm. will eventually be a total loss of energy because of that, that it can be reversed. And his premise was that life itself is an example of reverse entropy, where, you know, disordered atoms are put into very orderly, very efficient machines called organisms or life, which is pretty awesome. And that was just part of it. But that's what really made him like a kind of a pioneer. And that was his big contribution. And I get the impression that this book that was published in 1925 um, is one of those things where I could see people going back in 50 years and somebody rediscovering his ideas and saying, yeah. oh, my God, like you just advanced, you know, quantum physics right. by light by light years. It's it just been like kind of languishing until then, you know. Or here's the cure for cancer. Yeah, maybe. It's in his footlocker. This is all really sad, though, because I think the narrative that at the time was that, like, boy genius goes bust because he's working these jobs. And by all accounts, you know, he lived the life he wanted to live. And he had, had, I don't think, like, tons and tons of great friends. But he did have some very close friends who, like Mm -hmm. you said— described him as a as a good guy and kind of a could be kind of a fun dude and he wasn't completely maladjusted because of his childhood and i think just wanted to be left alone 
Yeah. So that's why in uh, 1937, that New Yorker um, article on him was just so devastating. It was because he'd been trying so hard to be left alone. Like his one and only publicly received book had been published a full 12 years before. He totally dropped out. And the New Yorker sent a, a, a woman reporter to basically become his friend under the guise of just being yeah. his friend so, and to gather yeah. information and then publish an article about him, you know? Yeah, he said it was uh, humiliating and made him sound crazy. Um, he sued. Now, this is where I got really confused, and I don't know if mm-hmm. you got to the bottom of it. He he did sue them for invasion of privacy and malicious libel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw all kinds of things from really good sources that the case was dismissed the, they basically, and it's used in privacy law as saying, if you're a public figure, you're always a public figure. Yeah. But I also saw that he did win some kind of settlement from yeah. them. I think there were just multiple suits, maybe. Yeah, I think that the privacy, the invasion of privacy suit he lost, and it was upheld on appeal, too, that, um, that like you said, once you're a public figure, you're always a public figure. But I think that, that um, libel was what he might have gotten a settlement for because there was misreporting. Like okay. They reported that he'd gone to Tufts, and I think that was Norbert Wiener who'd gone to Tufts. Just a couple of technical things, right. nothing really <laughs> really big time, but right. he hated this this article so much yeah. that I get the impression he wasn't about to drop it, and the New Yorker settled out of court to, to settle it. Yeah, so this was 1937. Lawsuits followed, and then very sadly, the, the sad ending to this story is that uh, in 1944, at the age of 46, uh, he was found dead by his landlady, uh, died of uh, cerebral hemorrhage, the same thing that killed his father uh, in 1923. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, you can get a really good impression of how he was treated by the media with just the title of the obituary they ran about him in Time magazine. Um, it was called Prodigious Failure. That was that was the the title of his obituary in Time back in 1944. Or smart Um, guy who lived his own life is another way to title it. Yeah, exactly. What what? Why did he have to perform for you? Uh, And then over time, you know, the idea that he was this great example of a of what happens if you just give your kid too much attention and try to turn them into a um, like a genius too young. This is what happens to them. They burn out and they end up running adding machines rather than doing anything useful. Um, that that was, that became that narrative that you have to look out for. Yeah. Really interesting so, story. Yeah. So um, you got anything else about William Sidus? No. Look forward to, uh, to a, a full sort of more robust episode on prodigies. For sure. Did you um did you when you mentioned Goodwill Hunting did you see too that that um that he was he in part inspired that movie? Oh really? Yeah. Did not yeah, know. Yeah, that. that's interesting. You drew that parallel. Hmm. Um, and, and then I want to give one shout out. So you know he gave a that talk on um, four dimensional bodies at Harvard when he was eleven. Yes. I, I was like I have no idea what that is, and I looked around and I found finally a really comprehensive really understandable explainer on four-dimensional space. It's called What is Four-Dimensional Space Like? It's by J.D. Norton. And if you're at all interested in figuring that out, I would strongly advise going to check that out. (laughs) I wasn't talking to you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Since uh, since Chuck said, yeah, uh, it's time for listener mail, everybody. How about them apples? Uh, (laughs) All right. I'm going to call this sort of a double metal email um quickly we got one from a a gentleman named kirk 
Bratvold in White Rock, BC. Nice. Who challenged me on saying Bruce, uh, saying Bruce Dickinson was the metal god, the god of metal, mm-hmm. on the Damascus Steel episode. He said, I think you'll find that Judas Priest's Rob Halford is widely acknowledged to hold the title of metal god. Okay. Uh, and I wrote Kirk Beck and I said, well, it's subjective. And I like Iron Maiden more than I like Judas Priest. Uh, uh, yeah, I do too. Yeah, you do? I'm with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I like Judas Priest, but I really, I mean, I think Iron Maiden, I just like them more. Yeah, me too. I like their songs more. Yeah, I think I could see where he's coming from. It's much more melodic and maybe in that sense a little less metal than Judas Priest. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, and then someone, uh, we got to shout out Gunner, who yeah. who took your side in the ACDC debate. Recently listened to man. two unrelated episodes. Uh, and in both episodes, Josh said he didn't like ACDC. So to you, Josh, I just want to say, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone else thinks ACDC is overrated. They're just not that good. Although some of their early songs are written by The Flash and The Pan. And I love Flash and The Pan. ACGC, uh, ACDC just doesn't do it for me. And that's from Gunner. And Gunner, I'm here to say that you were wrong. <laughs> ACDC is <laughs> great. I thought it was subjective. Well, that's my whole point, is I'm making fun of him for saying right and wrong. Oh, I see. I see. You turned it all over on itself. Yeah. I you confused me in the bargain. Man, stuff. check this out. Mm. We're, ta- we're talking about metal, we're talking about hard rock, and mm-hmm. we're getting emails from dudes named Kirk and Gunner. Yeah. I mean, how perfect <laughs> is that? We should start that band that we always Kirk, wanted to Kirk, Gunner, start. and Flash in the Pan. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard of Flash in the Pan? I never have before. I hadn't, but I had to look that up, too. They were an Aussie duo... Uh, who produced uh, some of the early ACDC stuff, apparently, and then were a band in their own right. So, right. got to check them out, too, now. The ACDC, and they went on to produce the Spice Girls. They're two big successes. That's right. And we're going to get that band with those guys, but I get to be Flash this time. I'm not going to be Pan anymore. I'll be Pan, then. Okay. Can I be Pan? Sure. But I'm going to really play up that, like, super light pan flute kind of thing that's my jam and i'm gonna dress uh like what's the half goat half man god dionysus uh, oh what is it called? no it's uh oh gosh i can't think of it i guess it wouldn't be dionysus it'd be pan anyway i'm gonna be yeah. like the greek god pan okay yeah that's my jam and i'm flash so i'll just go out there and open my overcoat <laughs> and <laughs> nice. no one will notice <laughs> it's, uh, it's, somebody will be like yeah i'm yeah. just leaving that one alone uh if you want to Get in touch with Chuck and I like Gunner and Kirk did, our new pals. You can email us at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.